My guests this episode played for the Texas Longhorns and then the Philadelphia Eagles. He was previously a college football analyst on ESPN. He now co-hosts the show Speak for Yourself on FS1. And he just wrapped hosting The Bachelor after the final rose on ABC. He's the creator of the smash hit YouTube series, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, and a New York Times bestselling author of a book that bears the same name. Never mind the fact that he has the most famous mentor in the world, Oprah Winfrey. I reunited with my friend Emmanuel Acho for a wide-ranging conversation. And boy, did we cover a lot of ground. From race and racism to the Holocaust and white saviorism. From how to give a good apology to how he wants to be remembered. This one was fun. And it was exactly what he intended with his book, Enlightening. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed listening to him. Welcome to the Sports Mentoring Project, Emmanuel Acho. How you doing, bud? What's up, brother? Good to see you again. It's been a while. It sure has. And we're going to jump right in and talk a lot about mentoring. We'll start with who your greatest mentor is or was. Greatest mentor would be my older brother, Sam Acho, uh, and my father, Dr. Sonny Acho, and my indirect mentors who I admire, but not as much hands-on, gospel recording artist, Kirk Franklin, and uh, actor, singer, songwriter, Jamie Foxx. Kurt Franklin is on In My House all the time. Love him. If he or, or Jamie or, or your brother or your dad were here right now, what would you say to them? Thank you for being an inspiration. I draw so much of my creativity and so much of what I try to aspire in creating my own genius from you. So that's, that's probably what I would say concisely. And what would you say, you pick one of them. What would you say one of them's superpower is? I'll pick Kirk Franklin, and his superpower is being able to stand the test of time. Gospel music has wavered over the course of the 90s. It was in 2000s. It was kind of in 2010s. It wasn't in at all. But Kirk has been able to stand the test of time. Though so many have faded, um, Kirk still stays on top. And Emmanuel, what's your superpower? My superpower, I would say, is accessibility, being able to dumb down the most complex uh, idea so that everyone can digest it. Who are your mentees? It's a good question, man. Um, right now, limited. Several people have reached out, John, to be mentees, and I am an all-in kind of guy. So if I don't have the time to be all-in with you, I don't want to do anything incomplete. And so at this junction in my time, I'm trying to build myself up. So no current mentees. But you've had Oh, uh, Let me say this. No current direct mentees, right? Several people, I think, draw from what I'm doing and reach out to me all the time. Hey, I started this conversation because of what I saw. I started this because of what I saw. But there's no one who I'm on a daily basis critiquing in that way. I am very glad you said that because we talk a lot on this podcast about mentors who know they're mentoring versus those who may not know, but they're imparting the wisdom anyway. So let me ask you this. You have had mentors. Yeah. What are the qualities that makes a good one? I think someone being raw, real, authentic, someone telling you when you're doing great, but someone also telling you hey, when you can improve and where you can improve. Someone who is willing to offer you the necessary feedback, someone who is willing to carve away 
the imperfection so that you can be your most perfect self. I think to be a good mentor, you have to be willing to be just vulnerable, raw, and real to allow the next person or the next generation to maximize their potential. And you are all in and you don't have time to be all in with mentees right now. But if I were to put you on the spot for the qualities of a mentee, they would be? The qualities of a mentee would be humility, um, would be insane work ethic, would be insatiable appetite for knowledge, would be a growth mindset, meaning I'm always willing to learn, grow, and be better. Those, I guess, would be my top three because I'm still a mentee to so many. That was great framing up the conversation. I want to jump right in. Manuel, your book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, changed me for one reason. It was not what I expected. It sent me on a roller coaster of emotions. I expected to feel uncomfortable, but not culpable. I expected feelings of guilt, but not anger and sadness. I expected the chronological context you provided, but I did not expect a history lesson. I was expecting perspective, but I didn't expect to learn about black skin, black hair, or the significance of saggy pants. And, (laughs) you know, I, I didn't expect you to change my view on Atticus Finch forever. And I thought I'd be inspired, but instead I leave with assignments. (laughs) And I loved every page. And so what did you intend for your viewers to feel and why? Man, both the viewers and the readers of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, I want them to be enlightened and I want them to be challenged and educated, right? Like so many people, I I hate saying, oftentimes if I sign the book, I'll say, I hope this book enlightens you. Because we have a negative connotation of educate. How are you going to educate me? What do you know? I'm not for all that. I just hope that you are enlightened. I hope that as if you walk into a dark room and you can't see much, but then you turn on the light and you're enlightened because you can now see what you couldn't previously see. It always existed, but you needed someone to illuminate the existence which you currently are breathing in. And that's what I wanted uncomfortable conversations with the black man to do. The world around us, the racial tension, the discrimination, the oppression, the systemic racism, it's always existed. But I wanted to enlighten my white brothers and sisters, my black brothers and sisters, my ignorant brothers and sisters uh, to the reality around us. So I go back about a year with the Acho family. And I actually first, it was Sam who I first met, a mentor of yours. And I met him on the west side of Chicago. And Sam shook my hand lefty because he had a sledgehammer in the other hand. Um, we were doing demo on, on one of the dozens of liquor store in this, in this neighborhood because Sam and his Chicago athlete pals raised the scratch to put together the money to build a grocery store where a liquor yeah. store once was. And it was an enormous endeavor. And then a few weeks later, You and I started talking about your upcoming (laughs) uncomfortable conversation with NFL commissioner Roger Goodell, which was another, at the time, significant get for you. So what is it about the Acho family and doing big things? Yeah, it's a good question, man. I will say this. um, 
the apple does not fall far from the tree. My mom and pops, they were born in Nigeria, as you know this, but for the audience, they came to America. And though they came to America and got their doctorates while they were in America, my dad would go back to rural villages of Nigeria and do missionary work and has continued to do that for over 30 years now. He's used his platform, he's used his creativity and his friends and his friends of influence to make an impact on the community in which he grew up in. And, and John, I believe more is caught than is taught. So I caught that from my parents. I caught their willingness to go back and serve the less fortunate. I caught their willingness to go back and lend a helping hand. And as a result, I'm trying to do the same thing. And my brother has clearly done the same thing. So I just think the apple does not fall far from the tree. In chapter two of the book, it's called, What Do You See When You See Me? You write the following. For many white people, white privilege is a power of feeling normal. It's the silent reinforcement of being able to walk into a store and see its main display showing products that cater to you. It's the ability to turn on the TV and see people who, like you, represented in all walks of life. It's passing the corner office at work and seeing someone who could have been you once upon a time and maybe finding mentors who see themselves in you. So this, Emmanuel, is a podcast about mentoring. I have mentors and mentees who are Black, so I have a tough time reconciling that part about mentoring. So given what you wrote, what's the best way to be service to a person of color as a mentor? Man, I think you can't serve what you don't know. It's incredibly, incredibly hard to come in and try to serve what you don't know. So if you're going to try to be a, a mentor, a mentee, to someone of a different color, different culture, you have to try to understand their culture. You have to try to understand what their color may mean to them. I, I can't, John, try to tell a woman necessarily how to navigate a workplace unless I understand what it's like to navigate a workplace as a woman. John, the advice you would give a white man up and coming in the business needs to be a little bit different than the advice you would give a black man up and coming in the business. Just as the advice you would give two different players who were trying to get drafted would be different. You wouldn't give them the same cut advice that you would give. Like you, you can't give the same advice, critique, wisdom to every individual. It needs to be custom catered. And I think people that don't look like you necessarily, that just also needs to be custom catered. And so that brings us all the way back to our high school days and Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird, which was a book about a white lawyer who gets a black man acquitted of murder. And really the difference between listening, active listening, which is a term that, that gets thrown around a lot now, especially this year, and listening and responding, these are three wildly different things. And in the workplace, as a mentor to young Black men and women, how do we position ourselves as allies versus white saviors? That's really good. Um, that's really good. And that's, uh, there's a tough dichotomy in that. I think the white savior complex, if you will, is kind of acting as though you couldn't have done this without me. Like I am the only way and the only resource for your viability or sustainability in society. Whereas being an ally is meeting a need um, wherever that need must be met. 
we talk about current allyship and what it looks like, what it's looked like for me. Sometimes it just looks like a call that says, hey, Acho, I'm here to listen to you if you want to vent, if you want to cry, if you want to mourn, whatever the case may be, I'm here for you. So allyship is different in the sense of the white savior complex is much more like, hey, look at me. I'm doing things to be seen. You see so many different people's religious groups, church groups, whatever the case may be, will go to these rural cities and villages of Africa and then come back with these pictures and postcards. And it's like, it, it seems like it's too much to glorify oneself. Whereas so often than not, like allyship is more in action than it is in words, if you will. I know you're a history buff and I know you're a family man. And I wanted to talk a little bit about my family, Eastern Europe in the 1930s. My grandfather was in a concentration camp called Dachau. My grandmother, like you, was a famous athlete in Austria. And I know you weren't in Austria, but she was an Austrian mm -hmm. athlete. She was a field hockey player and a handball player. She, she went to the Olympic trials for table tennis, got beat by a Nazi, by the way. But what she did do was she used her celebrity to break my grandfather out of the concentration camp. And they outran the Nazis through Europe before landing themselves literally at the feet of Lady Liberty in the Hudson Harbor. Now, six million Jews dead through the Holocaust, even more Soviet, Serbian, Polish citizens died at the hands of the Nazis. Thousands of other victims of all religions, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist. Not that anything bears that comparison, but 30 years later, here we are with another million dead in your home country or your parents' home country of Nigeria. And running through the Biafra War Biafra, yeah. is this red thread of racism. Your episode with the commissioner took us there. My episode of the Sports Mentoring Project with Neka Ogumake took me there. And so as a first-generation American and the descendant of survivors yourself, two survivors yourself, what's your take on racism here and there? Man, well, I think three things, John, are necessary for racism to exist. Power, privilege, and prejudice. Those are the three things for racism to exist from a group form. White people being racist against black people. An individual can be racist, but what's necessary, the three components, power, privilege, prejudice. When you're talking about other third world countries or countries like Nigeria, the real issue there is classism. And the problem is we get so confused based upon isms because typically one ism feeds into another ism, right? In our country, in, in America right now, we also have a big classism issue. I was asked this in a conversation with Oprah, and I, I said this, the racism bucket, imagine a bucket of water and one is pouring into another. The racism bucket is pouring into the classism bucket because racism has contributed to classism because in our society, two ways historically to garner wealth property and education and because of racism in the 50s and 60s after the war racism it, it it separated and segregated black people from affording adequate property and education so that racism bucket is contributing into the classism bucket so when you talk about a place like nigeria uh, my parents home country or or the other place in which i have citizenship it's really a matter of classism we're in america we're dealing with classism plus racism, obviously sexism, and so many other isms. And it's more complex than just a simple answer when someone asks you what's the difference between the two. You mentioned Oprah. How would you describe your relationship with her? 
Um, I would say teacher. I would say mentor. Yeah, I would say friend. Um, but I would, I would in, in order, I would probably say mentor, teacher, friend, right? Like Oprah's, I recently did, um, I recently had, a, I hosted The Bachelor after the final rose. It was a culmination episode of The Bachelor. And the one person I wanted to reach out for both before and after was Oprah. I literally went back and watched Oprah's interview with Tom Cruise. Remember Tom Cruise was jumping on the couch yep. back in, I think the early 2000s, because he was in a relationship. And of course I was like, how did Oprah get this out of him? So before my interview, I'm watching, I'm like game study. I love that this is a podcast with a, a sports guy because it's like watching game film. I'm going back and I'm watching Oprah's game film, if you will, from the early or mid thousands or the late nineties, I don't recall. And I'm studying, what did she say? What did she do? What were her motions? What were her movements? What were her questions? And then after I, I hosted The Bachelor after the final rose, I called Oprah's right-hand woman and I asked her, hey, how would Oprah have done this? How would she have done that? It's the same thing, post-game and pre-game. I'm studying film. Um, so I would say teacher, mentor, friend. Is there something you saw in the tape that made you better or position you to ask a better question to elicit a more emotive response? Absolutely. <laughs> Dude, everything I take is from Oprah. <laughs> like people, everything I take, man, uh, she will do this. She will say, um, take me back to the moment that you knew, right? Because rather than just saying like, hey, John, why'd you start this podcast? She'd say, take me back to the moment you knew you needed to start a podcast. Where were you? What were you feeling in that moment? Because now it makes you go back to a place and speak to the viewer of a specific moment, time, or place. She might say, um, "What is she, she, she asked me this the first time we spoke, and so I always ask people this. What was your intention? What was your intention for this conversation? Dude, honestly, watch me and watch her. And you'll see, I just, I borrow so much from Oprah, man. You end the book with a, a bunch of assignments for white people. That's a brash way of me saying it. But to me, it was a super constructive way to close because it, it demonstrates exactly what we can and should be doing as white allies, not just to help, but to join the fight against systematic racism. And I don't say that in a way that's trite. And for me, because it's not, that starts at the dinner table with my family. And here's what I learned about that that scared the crap out of me, that it's it's not an uncomfortable conversation for some odd Tuesday night in March. This is a mandatory topic of discussion. My wife and I need to lead every night with our children. Because if we don't lead it, it won't be had. So what do you tell your white friends about this, the dinner table conversation? I would say that we can't try to affect the world until we impact our world. So many people, oh my gosh, these issues in our society are so pervasive. They're never ending. But what are you doing to impact your own home? John, you know this because you read the book. But I say this, we got to first impact our house because our house exists within the neighborhood and the neighborhood it contributes to the city and the city is a part of the state and the state contributes to the nation and the nation it resides within the world but it all starts with your own house so if you want to affect the world which is uh inhabited by a bunch of different 
nations, which consists of states, um, which are inhabited by a bunch of different cities um, that are made up of houses, it starts with your home. And so for me, man, it's all a matter of what are you doing inside your home? And I'll end it by saying this, again, more is caught than taught. I've never drank alcohol, not because I think alcohol is bad or whatever. I just never drank alcohol. Why have I never drank alcohol? I never saw my parents drink alcohol. To this day, my mom or dad have never said, son, you shouldn't drink. No, I just didn't see it. So I didn't do it. I don't curse very often. Not because cursing is all that bad, depending upon your heart's intent. Not because my parents ever told me not to curse, but I truly have never once in my life in 30 years on earth have heard my parents curse. So I caught that. So if you want to broaden the horizons of equality in your household, what are you doing as parents? Because your children will catch that. Do you have black people, people of color, Asian Americans, uh, Latin and Latinx people, are they in your home? Are you breaking bread with them? Small groups, religious gatherings, youth activities, or are you just telling your kids, hey, make sure to be kind and nice to all people? No, it's about what you do, not what you say. So I am a sports marketing PR guy, and naturally I become a bit of an apology snob because every time you turn around, you see another sports apology, right? And what I mean by that is you've seen so many great examples how to not apologize for saying something racially insensitive or flat out being racist. And it's almost, I feel like it's almost impossible to do it wrong. Yet every other day you see another crappy one, right? Sorry if I hurt anyone's feelings. Let me explain what I meant to say. I have plenty of black friends. And it seems to me most people who make a mistake, they fail. They refuse to acknowledge it. They find a way not to directly apologize publicly and privately to the person they hurt with their words or actions, or they fail to explain exactly what they're going to do to fix the hurt that they cause. And most importantly, I don't see any real acceptance of accountability. So why is it so hard for people to do this when they F up over language, over the vernacular they're using as it pertains to racism? I'll say it's twofold. Number one is we don't like to be corrected. It's not a natural human response to want to be critiqued. We want to get things right. We want to be perfect. But then, Zana, try to always look at both sides and two sides of an argument. And our society doesn't currently give much room for redemption. We don't currently give much grace for growth. We're so quick to cancel people out in our culture that we don't really give people room to say sorry. And if we're being real, sorry is not good enough. We don't just want apologies now. Now we want people to lose their jobs, to be depressed, to be uh, uh, suicidal. Like we want people we want them to, to hurt be as much as they hurt us. Correct. Not necessarily fair punishment, some punishment that doesn't even necessarily fit the crime. And so I think those are the two contributing factors to why it is so difficult for people to apologize in this day and age. But inevitably, people are going to screw up. You're going to screw up. Your white brothers and sisters are going to screw up. So I, I hate to make you apologize for something you didn't do. But what is an example of the makings of a good apology? I think number one is you completely and fully own the mistake. Right. I think you have to fully acknowledge and own the error. Don't try to excuse it. I think we've seen recently, didn't someone make racist remarks and blamed it on like his low blood sugar? Yes. Um, there was like a coach. It was, like, a it was a women's basketball, high school basketball game in Texas. 
I believe. Yeah, made like racist remarks and said, you know, when my blood sugar is low, I tend to have like, dude, just stop. Just like own the mistake, acknowledge the mistake, and don't just make a verbal commitment to be better, but actually by actions commit to being better. But in all honesty, bro, like we got to be better about not making mindless mistakes and not even, I'm going to say this and I'm going to end here. Oftentimes, bro, we're not making mistakes. Just the ethos of who we are as a person is starting to come out. So we just have to be better about proactively being better people. You saw the Miami Heat player um, who, I forget his, Myers Leonard, was a mistake. <laughs> it was, it was, like He used the anti-Semitic term that was not a mistake. He went into the register of his mind to find whatever vile word he wanted to use, and he pulled out that word and fired it off. It wasn't a mistake. It was he was exposed. Who he was as a person in that moment was exposed. And the distinction for me is I've seen a lot of professional athletes do this in the context of a video game. In other words, it's an unguarded moment. They're in another moment. Their mind is somewhere else. And this comes out during the normal course of conversation. And we've seen some other athletes make that mistake again. Do you think? He's sorry. He was more sorry he got caught than he was using it amongst his friends so uh, cavalierly. Uh, yeah, I would have to assume so. But I would, anyone who uses that so freely, you're more so burdened that you got caught or you're burdened that you hurt people. But uh, we just we have to be better about being sensitive to society and just being better, more cognizant individuals. One story that really stuck with me, I cannot get it out of my head from your book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. It was what may have been the most important nine minutes and 27 seconds of your life. Your friend had drove all the way from Dallas, a white woman, with the intention of helping you make your first video, one I watched and 25, 27, I'm probably wrong, million Americans watched, only to back out at the last minute. And I, I need to know, because I really, I know you've, you, you've talked and you've reconciled, et cetera. Was she scared that she'd be labeled a racist, even though her role in the video was inherently to help you sort of prove a critical point to the audience? You know, I don't think she was scared she'd be labeled a racist. She, she told me, and we've had several conversations about it. We've agreed at times, we've disagreed at times. She told me that, I needed to do it by myself and people did not want to see her. If you're asking for my exclusive isolated opinion, I think she was a little bit fearful of looking unintelligent. I think she was probably a little bit fearful of looking out of place. I think she was probably a little bit fearful of backlash. All things that, by the way, I was fearful of. So I don't fault her for her fear. I just didn't have the ability to not do it because I think that lives and lives of people that look like me were dependent upon my speech. Okay. So take me back to the moment right, where she told you she wasn't going to participate. Dude, that was tough, man. I'm walking downstairs at like 9.54 a.m. My call time to be in studio was at 11 a.m. on a Sunday. And I walked downstairs. She was staying in my house. She drove from Dallas to Austin. I had a guest room. And we, we picked out her outfit the night before, me, my friend, and her. All right, 
you're going to wear the green. I think it might have been a romper, a green or navy jumpsuit. So we're good. I walk downstairs. I'm dressed. It's all good. And I see her, no makeup on, hair not done, sitting in her, her PJs, if you will, uh, at my kitchen table. I'm like, yo, uh, we, we got to go. And he's like, I just I can't do it. I'm like, what, what do you mean you can't do it? Like, we, we practiced this. We rehearsed this. Tears start to run down her eyes. They don't want to see me. They don't want to see me. They want to see you. I tried to go back and forth with her for about five minutes, but now time is dwindling. And if she's not going to do it, I have to do it by myself. So I finally just let it go and said, no worries. I'll, I'll do it by myself. So that was a very vivid conversation and memory for me. But, but I, I, Emmanuel, the video was so powerful. What would have changed with her involvement? Better you know, I worse? think some things are... I think some things are divine. I think it was meant to be how it was meant to be. I'm a man of faith. I think God probably ordained, I think God definitely ordained that in the manner in which it was to happen. But remember, it's uncomfortable conversations with a black man. It's not uncomfortable monologue with a black man. So the first nine minute, 27 second episode, I'm talking to myself. I'm asking questions and answering the questions. All that was going to change was she was going to pose the four questions that I ended up posing myself and then answering. So I think God blessed the whole project and he's been behind the whole project. So I think uncomfortable conversations would have happened regardless, um, had she been involved or had she not. Um, but I, I also think it happened how it had to. Last question, I know you're running out of time. The media is writes about everything you do now. And that's actually been for a long time, right? I mean, Texas Longhorn, NFL player, Fox Sports commentator, now host of The Bachelorette, author, creator of Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man, the series. So I'm now putting the, you are a member of the media too. So I'm putting the pen in your hands. <laughs> it, you know, you decide to go off into the sunset. You've You've exhausted all of your, creative juices uh you're you're well into your you know 80s or 90s or whatever it is and the new york times has a story about your career the day after you retire you get to write the headline what does it say i think it would say um the man who was a creative genius and found a way to entertain while bringing our world together well, that feels like a great place to end. Emmanuel Acho, thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you for talking to me about an issue that's uncomfortable for a lot of us, including you. And I am such a big fan of your work. Keep doing what you're doing and keep smiling, keep having fun and, and keep, keep pushing us to have those uncomfortable conversations. My brother. Thanks, Don. All right. Thanks, buddy.